This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by MLK50, April 3rd and 4th in Memphis, Tennessee. Visit mlk50conference.com. Well, I'm really excited to bring you this podcast today, a conversation with my good friend Jenny Yang, who's Vice President for Advocacy and Outreach at World Relief. Uh, Jenny is perhaps one of the most gifted public speakers I've heard and just is a real tireless advocate for immigrants and refugees. She stopped by to talk, first of all, her own experience as the daughter of an immigrant and how that shaped her advocacy, but also as a wife and a mother and, and how that shapes her calling. And so we, we do talk about the seemingly incompatible tribes sometimes within evangelicalism of you know those who are really heroic and active pro-life champions and those who champion issues of justice and talked about ways that perhaps those two groups can work together. Uh, I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation with Jenny Yang. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. It's great to be here. We're here at Evangelicals for Life, uh, talking about a wide range of human dignity issues. I think people know you best probably for your advocacy uh, for refugees and immigrants, your work at World Relief. Do you just want to share a little bit about how you got into this work and what you do? Yeah, so I've actually been at uh, World Relief, an organization I work for, for about 12 years. In mm-hmm. And I, uh, I started actually working in politics. So I was doing some political consulting for some local elected officials in Maryland. And then I started in the refugee program at World Relief. Um, and actually what was interesting before I started World, World Relief was my experience in college because I spent a semester studying abroad in Spain. And you know, I grew up in the United States of America as a, a minority. And when I went to Spain, I was still a minority. But the experience I saw of a lot of African migrants and migrants from Latin America was really formational for me because I saw blatant discrimination and racism pretty much on a weekly basis when I lived there. And and so that summer, I actually remember riding the subway one time and there was a young African woman and her child in the subway and a bunch of Spanish teenagers came on and they started graffitiing on the wall, get out of my country, black people. And it really upset me because not only did that instance of blatant racism happen, but that no one on the subway actually stood up and said anything to these individuals. And so that summer, I started volunteering, doing research, and uh, doing research at the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, mm-hmm. doing refugee law research, asylum law. Um, but I also started working at a, a local grassroots organization called SOS Assistance they basically combat racism in Spain, so we organize rallies. So mm. I was working kind of at the, the policy level, addressing systemic issues that actually affect refugees and immigrants, and then also at the grassroots level, because I knew mm. that, that narrative change and relationship building is a core part of a movement, I think, as well. So so that's how what really got me interested in, in refugee issues specifically. I think, of course, my personal experience being the daughter of immigrants mm-hmm. and, and having that experience be formational for me in how I view you know, God and scripture and mm-hmm. my my calling in his life and who I am has also formed my, my views on, on some of these things. And so so being at World Belief has been formational for me because especially in, in our work with churches and, mm-hmm. and working um, obviously out of scriptures and that truth, I think it's really helped me to, to do what I do today. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't know that 
when I when I go around the country and I talk about some of the things that World Relief does, mm-hmm. that people understand the full scope of, of, of what you do. And there's a really unique ministry, right? And 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 not only here in the United States, but around the world, but but if you think about the United States, um, the model of World Relief to kind of work with churches and with the government to try to settle refugees and immigrants in, in really uh, good communities, right? And uh, use the church. I mean, th- that's really what the church is the best at yeah. when it's at its best, right? And kind of assimilating yeah. people, groups, and welcoming people, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, not just in the United States, but around the world. We work in 14 countries around the world doing disaster response and humanitarian aid. And really, actually, church community and church development is, mm-hmm. is what we do. And then in the U.S., we resettle refugees and serve immigrants. And I think what we're really challenging churches to begin to do is to be and do what Jesus did in mm-hmm. the gospel. And, yeah. and when you look at his ministry and you look at all the parables, you see that he is someone who who not just cared about people's spiritual condition, he cared about their physical and social condition mm-hmm. as well. I mean, when, you, um, when the people are pressing in on Jesus, and in the parable of, of feeding the 5,000, mm-hmm. the fact that he actually gave them food in addition to talking about the kingdom of God, or healing the woman at the well, mm-hmm. and, and telling her to sing no more. I mean, or, I mean, the prostitute, I mean, all these things that Jesus did are all examples of, of him caring about the full personhood and their life here on earth, not just mm-hmm. what's going to happen after he died. And so I think for us, in challenging the, the church in the U.S., um, and, and any church around the world to serve their community that's in need, um, it's actually rooted in this idea that I think when you enter into relationships with those in the margins, you actually um, are transformed yourself mm-hmm. because you you enter into these relationships thinking you're going to give something, mm-hmm. and then what oftentimes happens is you yourself are transformed by that very relationship. Mm-hmm. So you actually get more out of it by serving and giving then, then you feel like you're actually giving into that relationship. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, we're here at a pro-life conference, if you will, or we're here. I mean, the, the Evangelicals for Life is kind of centered around uh, the March for Life. And I think one of the unique things that we're, we're doing is saying that we're, we're very much pro-life and, and when it comes to the unborn. And mm-hmm. we're, we're marching and saying, you know, where some people see uh, a clump of tissue or something. We, we see a whole person there. Uh, but what's unique, I think, what, what we're saying, we're saying to be holistically pro-life is to look a- across the range of the human experience and, and, and see the dignity there. You and I were talking a little bit yesterday, and you know, you said, you know, this is this is why I'm doing the work I'm doing on with refugees and immigrants because of pro-life convictions, right? And oh, so, yeah. you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think part of uh, the challenge that we face in the church today is the selective application of biblical truth. Mm. And and I say that because I think when the biblical truth is inconvenient to us mm-hmm. or makes us uncomfortable, we, we actually ignore it mm-hmm. or we misapply scripture. And I think when it comes to a lot of the social issues of our day, I think when it comes to the unborn, um, and we talk about crisis pregnancies and we talk about mm-hmm. women in our church that are, that are suffering and hurting, um, even some of the abuse that we're seeing kind of coming out of the woodwork um, that mm-hmm. has been happening, I think, against women, even men, for a long period of time, and um, or this discrimination that immigrants and refugees face, um, and uh, realizing that okay, there's there's biblical truth that actually addresses all of these situations. Yeah. yeah. And I think if we, as well as 
of Jesus are actually to be consistently faithful in our witness. Mm-hmm. We have to apply the whole scripture to every social and political issue yes. that we encounter. And I think a, a lot of times um, we don't see how scripture applies to, you know, for immigrant rights advocates, we're like, well, we don't know how this applies to someone who's having an abortion or, or, right. or like people who are, or, you know, traditionally for life are also saying, I don't, I don't think immigration right. is a, Double issue, right. it's a political issue, and and so you see these these, mm-hmm. these kind of kind of these, tribes, right? Yeah, these tribes forming, and I think that the challenge for the church today is really to say that the the truth, if we really believe in the Bible and the truth of the image of God in every mm-hmm. human person, even the unborn, then that has to be applied across the board. And I think the challenge right now is is um, because these tribes have already formed to a certain mm-hmm. degree. And because of, of just the busyness of our everyday lives, I think it is sometimes challenging to say, you know, when I have limited time resources, I'm going to just focus on this yeah. one thing. Um, but to say, hey, actually, I can speak out on a lot of different things, especially when there's certain policy decisions that are being made. or yeah, that affect real people, right? Yeah, or even moments in our culture when it's appropriate for us to be speaking out. Like, those are the times that I yeah. think it's really important for us to, to be taking a stand on, on, on everything. I, I think it's interesting because um, you really hit on something. And one of the things you've been able to do is kind of speak across some of these tribes in, in a really good way. But you're exactly right. I mean, you, you sort of have traditional pro-life activists who, who many have been really heroic and, and really saying, you know, there's, there's personhood here where people don't see it. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, kind of traditional social justice advocates who are also heroically saying about immigrants and refugees and the poor and marginalized, there's a person here. And, you know, how do we get these two groups to work together to say, like, you're actually drawing from the same scripture. You're, yeah. you're both drawing from the idea that people are creating the image of God. You know, how do, how do we get people to be unified and say, you know, besides coming evangelicals for life, of course, right. but like, <laughs> but how do we get people to say, you know, we, we, we can do both. Yeah. Both things at once. Yeah. Well, I think part of the way to address that challenge is um, a couple things. I think, um, well, th- maybe three things. I think the first thing is I think pastors and church leaders have a special responsibility mm-hmm. because I think being in the pulpit every week and having that platform is is a responsibility in which you you can talk about the the whole broad spectrum of life issues. I think in a way within the church, I think the church has to occupy that role. Um, secondly, I think oftentimes we only care about the things that we've experienced ourselves or know people who've experienced themselves. And so when it comes to people who are pro-immigrant, you know, they don't know someone who's Mm -hmm. gone through, you know, um, abortion or or making that decision. Mm -hmm. And so when it's removed from you, you don't think it affects you. Mm -hmm. And so I think building those relationships, I think especially in church communities that um, are more diverse not just racially, but socioeconomically mm-hmm. in particular, I think you'll encounter more of these challenges. And what, and it's across the board as well, but I think building those relationships, I think is critical. But I also think we have to have a broader understanding of the intersectionality of how family issues collide with, you know, immigrant issues mm-hmm. collide with, with environmental issues collide with, you know, yeah. anything else that we can talk about. Um, because like, for example, there are thousands of kids that end up in the foster care system every yes. year because their parents are deported. And we, that's, that's I, we work with pastors on a weekly basis who are, I mean, really on a daily basis. Like I know friends 
who have to sign off on legal guardianship agreements because you know their friend is the main think that they're going to get deported in the next week or so. Mm. And so the tearing apart of families, the deportations that are happening, I mean, these are, to be pro-family is to be pro-immigrant. Absolutely. Or when you're pro-immigrant, you are pro-family as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and I think a lot of times people don't understand these intersections, right, mm -hmm. of, of these various issues. And so talking more about, you know, these are all actually interconnected. And so when we silo ourselves off and say, this is the only thing we care yeah. about, but then we can't translate that to a broader discussion. I think it's oftentimes because we we uh, we don't see the intersectionality. You've been doing this for a long time, and uh, it just seems like you go through these seasons where, okay, we're gonna make some real progress here, and we're gonna get protections for you know immigrants who are here, and then we go through seasons where it's really discouraging, where it seems like there's a rising populism and nativism that makes people uh, scared again. And so do you kind of view all of this as a long-term battle and a long-term uh, effort? I mean, obviously you have to, yeah. otherwise you yeah. wouldn't be doing this, right? But how do you not get discouraged when you look at politics and you look at, you know, what's popular? I mean, yeah. Well, I, I, I always think that God is in the work of redemption and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that has to be against the backdrop of understanding the, mm -hmm. the condition of man, which is, is mm -hmm. sinful inherently. Yeah. So, so you know, when we see uh, our political situation and all of these things, you know, I think sometimes there's times, you know, over the, the years, I've said, okay, this is the worst moment or this is the worst moment. But then mm -hmm. I think as you as you work for a long time, you realize yeah. there have been worse things that have happened and there have been you yeah. know, better things that have happened. and. And I think that the perpetuation of our human sinfulness to mm -hmm. want to um, uh, castigate and discriminate and dehumanize is, is always going to be there. And I think mm -hmm. part of it is understanding that um, uh, the work of the church is to, to go above and beyond that and mm -hmm. to really address things as they are with the spiritual reality of and the spiritual dimension of things. And so yeah. I think um, if again, I think if the church, we always emphasize the church because yeah. the church it really is what's going to transform communities and individuals. And so I think if the church occupies that role of really being the leaders, having some of these conversations, mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, yeah, I think there's always a reason to be hopeful. <laughs> let me let me ask you this: um, There's a lot of you know, in working with immigrants and and refugees here in America, you know, our our church actually and. In Tennessee, we work with like immigrants from Egypt and um, some Middle East, and, and our people have really rallied to that. Uh, do you think? Um, I guess I have two questions. One: What are some of the persistent myths that we hear about immigrants and refugees that uh, that you're always having to dispel? And secondly, do you feel like once people are kind of immersed in immigrant communities and are actually serving? them do you feel like you know you, you see people's views change yeah um i mean there's so many myths about immigrants yeah. in our country i think um i think there i think we have to understand the historical background of immigration in the mm -hmm. united states because sometimes we have historical amnesia and we romanticize what it was like for ancestors when they came yeah. here um the people who found in this country were poor they were illiterate Mm -hmm. They were um, fleeing persecution. They were refugees. Mm -hmm. um, that's the people who founded this country. And and to think that somehow our ancestors were, 
you know, are really different than the people who are coming today, I think is a misnomer. I think the, the reasons that people are coming today are the reasons why the, the first founders of the country came to this country. Mm-hmm. And before 1924, there was no illegal way to come in. And so when people today say, well, the people today should come in the legal way, just like my ancestors did. Well, I sometimes think that if your ancestors try to come through the legal system today, they wouldn't be able to come in because before 1924, there was no visa. So anyone basically could come in, get processed through Ellis Island, for example, and 90, over 99% of individuals were processed through Ellis Island and actually got here. Um, and so, so this, this idea that somehow the immigrants of yesterday are more glorified or better than the immigrants of today, again, I think is, mm-hmm. is a misconception. Uh, it's like comparing apples and oranges because the, the game back then or the immigration system is totally different yeah. than the immigration system today. Um, I also think that, especially in some of these policy discussions, as we talk about you know, the value of immigrants and who they are, um, is to talk about the value of immigrant families because I think a lot of times we say, well, you know, someone should come here and just work themselves, but then when they're able to bring their wives and their children, or even their, their families, it creates social capital in our communities. Yes. And, and they are able to start businesses, they're able to take care of their children, and that social capital, I think, is not really uh, realized in hard economic data, but it's there. And I think for for people who, especially are followers of Jesus, that really care about the family, I think that the value and role of immigrant families is fundamental, I think, to our country. And I would also say that I think um, this idea that we're somehow just allowing anyone to come here or they're not, you know, they're just coming in and, and yeah. they have no value, I think is, is a misnomer as well. Because when you look at the way our immigration system has worked, in 1965 is when we ended our preference for immigrants from North, Northern Europe. We actually had a racial preference for immigrants from Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. And when we said, actually, it's going to be merit-based, and if you come to the U.S., you have to have a visa from an employer, and you have to have family here, that was our merit-based system, that is actually when our country became more diverse. So the diversity that we have in our country today is a result of us wanting the best and brightest from around the world. And so I think we should acknowledge that the diversity in our country today is a result of us attracting the best and brightest. And and uh, for us to to want to continue that is something that we have to recognize is if we want to continue in that way and have a merit-based system, it should actually, it oftentimes will be a more diverse community mm-hmm. and then maybe some people are actually intending. So I think that's something to recognize as well. But yeah. Yeah. And the second part of, of the question, when we talk a lot about some of the disturbing things where we wish Christians were more pro-immigrant and uh, evangelical churches in their rhetoric and just the policies that they support. Uh, but on the flip side, we've seen, and you've probably seen even more than I have, but we've seen some churches and you know, communities around the country really rally to the cause of uh, refugees and helping them and welcoming them into their churches. You know, I think of uh, Johnson Ferry Church and in, in, uh, one of our Southern Baptist churches in the Atlanta area and, and Bryant Wright kind of taking a leadership role, but challenging his church and his church kind of rallying. Are, do you see like when a, when a pastor really articulates a vision for including immigrants and welcoming them, do you see, are you seeing people kind of follow that and just sort of having their views changed? Definitely. I think that leaders like Bryant and others that are really leading the charge and really impacting the communities that their churches mm-hmm. are actually in is creating space for other churches to actually think the same way. And 
I mean, I think every pastor should be doing this, is, is looking at your local community and being welcoming and inviting of everyone who's within that geographic vicinity. Mm-hmm. And I think um, sometimes it requires active efforts of outreach into that community. And I mean, there's immigrants in every single community yeah. across the country. Yeah. And so I think um, it's always helpful to have people like Brian and others. I mean, I think on a certain level, their church obviously is being transformed through some of these relationships yes. with refugees and, and being able to share the gospel and, and just love their neighbor, I think is, yeah. is a tangible expression of that. But at the same time, I think pastors um, using the pulpit to educate their churches mm-hmm. and even to come to D.C. and meet with your elected officials. I mean, that is a holistic yeah. um, application of, of, of that witness, I think, is the education piece service and prayer and advocacy i mean those are core components of that you know that 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 last part is really important and we try to encourage that too i think for the average pastor it's kind of intimidating to like get into the policy space or but you have really encouraged pastors to come to dc Mm -hmm. or even locally meet with their local congressman and just articulate here's how we feel about this issue uh and have a have a conversation that seems really effective isn't it yeah, I think it is scary for a lot of pastors because uh, they don't want to be seen as overtly political. But yeah. when you, for example, pastor a, con- a congregation in which there are specific people in your congregation that fear deportation or who are suffering through a broken, mm-hmm. you know, their, the application process, it compels you if you're wanting to pastor that individual to then speak into the system yeah. in which they're living and change it so that they won't have to have that security. So I think it's a natural outcropping of your pastoral duties to want to change mm-hmm. systems and structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, but I, again, I think it's a challenge because you don't want to be seen as overtly political. But I think the pastors that have done it well are saying, you know, we're not necessarily being overtly political, we're being pastoral in, in what we're doing. Yeah. And I think in a, to, to always found it on biblical principles and um, to do it in a way that's not overtly partisan, where you're mm-hmm. denigrating one candidate or one political party is, I think, a really effective way to do it. And so I think as more pastors and, and more churches, I think, would engage in the political space, I think it would make such a huge difference. Because those mm-hmm. voices, a lot of times, are, are lacking on a lot of different issues. You're a woman. You're a mom. You're a wife. A minority, mm-hmm. and so uh, really have a unique voice, you know, in the evangelical world and and in the advocacy space, mm-hmm. which is usually, you know, still pretty much dominated by by uh, majority culture, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, how, how has kind of all those life experiences shaped the way that you do advocacy? Yeah, uh, I think. Uh, being a mom and a woman in particular, I um, I just I have a deep level of compassion for for other women and for the experiences they have um, in pregnancy and you know trying to get pregnant and, and you know being good good mothers and good wives and and all of that. I think that's part of you know the experience. And so I think um, I mean especially having children and trying to role model for them the things mm-hmm. that you really believe are valuable it challenges you to be a better person and to actually look at whether or not you're living your consistent life in word and in deed. And I think, um, you know, being especially a wife and um, having that partnership is, is really critical. And, and, you know, my husband and I are always talking about our schedules and like, yeah. you know, my husband is seminary and, and uh, in Chicago, we live in Baltimore. And so we literally have had to like take my son, my two-year-old son, 
and like he gets dropped like I'm flying in and he's in the car and I get in the car and he like goes off to the airport and flies somewhere else so that that kind of like scheduling even like the basic things is yeah. really challenging as well um but I think being especially an Asian American woman in mm-hmm. in at a time when I think um uh and there's discussions our discussions about race and even immigration has been really interesting because I think you know, I do occupy uniques. I have a very unique perspective because it's something I never wanted to bring into the conversation about immigration was my own personal experience. Because I actually mm-hmm. thought it would discredit me. Because I thought that people would say, oh, she's making it personal, but but they're not going to listen to the fact that actually I'm saying these things first and foremost because I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And then it's all these other identities. But like that's what drives me. And so, so don't discount what I'm saying just because you think I'm the daughter of immigrants. Right. Like actually listening to what I'm saying as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I think it's actually more compelling. You know. Yeah, and so I remember when I was um, at Calvin College and I was sharing these immigration Mm -hmm. statistics to a group of like retired people in Mm -hmm. the community. Just I wasn't clicking, and then finally someone was like, "Why do you care about this?" And I started sharing about my family and all this stuff, and then like people were crying in the room. It completely changed. And ever since then, the coordinator there was like, "You should, you should share your story more because it's so powerful." And ever since then, I've done that. Yeah. It's, it's helped. And so um, I think owning that identity, owning that story has mm-hmm. actually been a challenge, but it's something I've grown over time mm-hmm. as well. And so... And yet, and yet you're close. One of the things that makes your advocacy, I think, really good is you're also close, pretty close to the, to the church and to the ministry, you know, with your husband being, you know, in, in ministry yeah. and, and, and that area. So that kind yeah. of in, probably informs... Your advocacy as well, right? Yeah, and 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 the the way that I always think about it is again, am I being consistent, faithful witness to, to Jesus? And mm-hmm. and I think even in my local church, I say, are we doing everything to reach our community? Are we reaching mm-hmm. out to immigrants that I know are here? And you know, that's like I need to live that out as well. I mean, I I do um, mentor and get to know refugees mm-hmm. and others in our community, but I think I could be doing more. Mm-hmm. And you know, are we reaching out to people who are experience crisis pregnancy is like are we even mm-hmm. in that space? like that's another challenge that we have as well so yeah. like across the board i think there's a lot more that we can be doing but obviously being plugged into the local church is, is it's mm-hmm. foundational well i appreciate the work that you do yeah. and uh yeah. just your voice mm-hmm. on on these important issues and thank you for stopping by and yeah and chatting for for a little bit it's great to be friends and to partner in, in all this together yeah well thank you This year marks the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's tragic assassination. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. On April 3rd and 4th, the Gospel Coalition and the ERLC are gathering a diverse group of Christian leaders in Memphis, Tennessee for MLK 50, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop. Key speakers are Russell Moore, Benjamin Watson, John Piper, Jackie Hill Perry, Rick Warren, Tripoli, Matt Chandler, and many others. We're gathering these leaders to discuss the ongoing racial tension uh, both in 
the country, but more specifically in the church in the last several years. And we'll reflect on the life and the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. You can get more information on mlk50conference.com. And if you use the coupon code WAYHOME, you can get a special discount. Thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.